Now, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he, Jesus, withdrew to Galilee. And he left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. The Gospel of the Lord. The common thread to those three readings is the power of God to reset our human expectations. So uh, at the services I preached at on Christmas Eve, I asked if people had seen the musical Hamilton, and then kind of the refrain of the sermon was based on uh, the best-known song in that musical, which is The Room Where It Happens. Uh, But that song and the whole musical might never have been written if uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda had not read uh, Ron Chernow's biography of Hamilton. I still haven't read Ron Chernow's biography of Hamilton, but I am reading Ron Chernow's biography of uh, Ulysses Grant at the moment. There's an interesting section in that biography um, where Grant talks about the first time that he experiences combat. And uh, this is during the the 1840s and the American invasion of Mexico and the Mexican-American War. And, and what he, he says is he, he kind of goes into that situation with kind of uh, youthful innocence and exuberance and actually excitement uh, to be in combat. And, you know, it's going great uh, until um, several of the people around him are hit by fire and, and suffer grievous, grievous physical wounds. And he, he never forgot that. Nevertheless, when he writes his memoirs like 40 years later, what Grant says is, is then, after experiencing uh, the U.S. Civil War, looking back on that initial experience of combat, he, he wrote, uh, you know, that, that wouldn't even have been worthy of being reported to headquarters if it had happened in the Civil War. In other words, he had become so immune to slaughter and to violence that uh, something little like that first experience wouldn't even register. It takes the power of God to reset human expectations. The reason I mentioned the Grant example is is that um, Isaiah chapter 9 is written to a an entire generation of people who have known nothing but war. Their, their country has been overrun repeatedly by Assyrian armies who were relentlessly cruel in how they persecuted their wars. And so the people who were left must have been traumatized beyond anything we can imagine, and that's a great blessing that we, we can't imagine that. 
Um, but, but a lifetime of war and violence has, has left people hopeless, the people who walked in darkness. And the prophet Isaiah recognizes this and recognizes that in one lifetime, perhaps, wars um, always live within those who've experienced them. But perhaps, even if our own power cannot change that, perhaps the power of God could reset our expectations. And so Isaiah writes to the people who walked in darkness. They've seen a great light. The people who lived in the region and shadow of death, on them light has shined. And it ends with that amazing verse that gets read uh, on Christmas Eve that we will be granted a wise, wonderful counselor, a prince of peace. It takes the power of God to reset our human expectations. Second lesson. So I had a laugh, laugh yesterday, because uh, as I was reading 1 Corinthians 1, thinking about this sermon, actually this happened days ago. I don't ever write my sermons on Saturday. <laughs> this happened like Monday. Anyhow, yesterday... <laughs> I was reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when literally something happened that happens a lot. Uh, you guys are really good at sending me articles and, and little video clips and everything. So somebody sent me one as I'm reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I just had a laugh and I read the article right away because the headline of the article, this is from the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, was, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was something like, old people told not to come to church. And literally, and, and how, how the situation is, in the, uh, there's a United Methodist Church in the Twin Cities area that's down to worshiping 20, 25 people a week, and the denomination which owns the building has decided they're going to close the congregation, kind of have a resting period, and then the, in the fall they're going to reopen it as a mission congregation, uh, but they're asking the people who currently go to that church to go to other nearby Methodist churches so it can kind of have a fresh start. Uh, and needless to say, this has caused the people who currently go to the church to like, feel a little uh, uh, hurt and indignant. Why can't we go to our own church? Old people need not come to church. So now, as I read that, two things crossed my mind. Number one, I am experienced enough with religious bureaucracies, and I'm sure you're experienced with... Uh, business, governmental, educational, medical, whatever. I mean, any bureaucracy is capable of amazing, spectacular blunders, and I have no doubt that our United Methodist brothers and sisters were capable of really screwing that situation up. The other possibility, however, is that I, I do know that uh, just in Milwaukee alone, we have two congregations in the ELCA that have been worshiping 10 or 20 people for over a decade. And if they had kind of slid down to that after years of faithfulness, you know, we'd support them forever. And in the ELCA, we couldn't close them if we wanted to. But the truth is, if we did close them, it would just kind of confirm what they already decided 20 years ago, which is they haven't invited anybody in 20 years. If somebody stumbles in by mistake, they haven't welcomed anybody in 20 years. They kind of just exist for themselves. And whether you're a congregation or an individual, when you just exist for yourself, you're not existing at all. So the situation in Minneapolis-St. Paul, I'm not sure. I don't know if it's, it's kind of what has happened to a couple congregations here, if the denomination totally screwed it up, or if it's somewhere in between. 
Nevertheless, I laughed when I read the headline because I think there's this, so here are all these Christians in, in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area conflicting about something. And there's such a sense sometimes in the church that, well, Christians shouldn't do that. Like, we should never have disagreements with each other. And, and then I think, like, you know, uh, like, you got to read you've got to read 29 chapters of Corinthians where there's literally a disagreement every chapter. If we have disagreements in our world where you've got point A and point B and the people who hold them do this and... In other words, if our disagreements are disrespectful and, and hurtful, I mean, that, that's, that's unproductive. Um, but, man... Uh, you don't learn if you never disagree with somebody. You never come to a better solution if you never disagree with somebody. You never get outside your own little orbit if nobody ever disagrees with you. There's just an equal possibility that A and B come together and lead to something like C that's something that everybody can buy into. In, in Corinthians, Paul gets right off to, the, you know, within 11 verses, he's already to... I've heard from Chloe's people that there's this little disagreement. That some of you think you're better because you were baptized by Paul, or some of you were baptized by Cephas, or some of you were baptized by Apollos. And then he says to him, it doesn't matter who poured water over your head. It's who you believe in. And the last thing he says is, I know it's foolishness to the world to believe what we believe. The power of God in Christ Jesus. I know it's foolishness to think that unconditional love, which might cause you to sacrifice everything to be a blessing to someone else. There are plenty of people who want no part in that. Plenty of people. It's foolishness. But it is also the saving love of Jesus Christ, the power of God, to reset human expectations. Maybe what appears to be foolishness is the best possible wisdom, hey? And we get to our gospel lesson. So what you got to know about the gospel lesson is the 11 verses before the section that I read is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. We'll read that the first week of Lent. Jesus withstands 40 days of not eating and Satan's temptations with scripture alone. In a sense, it must have been exhilarating for him to win that little contest. And then he comes back into reality, and the first thing he hears is that his relative and forerunner and probably his friend John the Baptist has been arrested, and in that world, if the king threw you in prison, you weren't coming out, and John wouldn't. And Matthew tells us that Jesus withdrew to Galilee. It's a military term. In Greek, it means retreated. He retreated. Even Jesus retreated. Then don't you think it's interesting and kind of powerful that Matthew kind of pauses for a couple verses there and and chooses to remind his very Jewish audience of Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness, the people whose rulers throw them in jail and kill them for speaking simple truths. On them light has shined. Wonderful counselor, prince of peace. And then he returns to the story of Jesus and begins with the first thing Jesus says in his ministry, which is what? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Who had said that? John the Baptist. 
In other words, having retreated, having had an opportunity to perhaps reflect on whether he really wanted this ministry or not, Jesus is too foolish to back down from what his forerunner had spoken, and in fact, it's what he opens with. Repent, turn around, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let your world be reset for something better and good. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus uh, quotes the adage that the, the sins of the fathers and mothers are visited out to the third and fourth generation. And that's true, evil it replicates and it spreads. But he also says what? That, that the goodness and love of God, that, that spreads out to a thousand generations. And I think that math is probably also correct. When you just think about what we experience in our world, if you only listen to the many forms of media out there, or even people who like to complain around you, of which there are plenty, you, you would think everything is evil, but I'm pretty sure actually the ratio is three to four to like a thousand. Because there are powerful, amazing, good things happening all the time. We tend to perhaps not pay as much attention to them as we should. For example, how many of you have heard of the Milwaukee Bucks? They're like doing pretty good right now. <laughs> Go Bucks! Uh, we don't have the Packers anymore, so now we have a different team in green that can do better. Uh, so they did kind of a cool thing uh, recently. They, um, uh, almost all their games are sold out at this point. Uh, but, you know, when you think of how ticket sales go, they, they always end up with a lot of single-seat tickets. And for the really big games, those will get sold. But for some of the lesser teams coming in, they probably won't sell those single-seat tickets. So their marketing department decided, well, let's just give them away. And so they gave 100 of them recently to the freighter to MCW system. You know, quite a few are connected to that particular system. Freighter to MCW said, well, you know, we should share these with some of our partners. So they shared 10 of them with the Bread of Hilling Clinic. And the social workers who got them at Bread of Healing said, well, we should probably share these with some of our patients. And that's kind of a hard thing, like how, who do you decide who to share it with? But they decided, well, we'll just share it to some patients who have like, been doing some really good work lately. So one of the, the people they invited is this guy who has really made progress on his weight and exercise and diabetes. And so they called him up. He doesn't have a lot of money. He's got a uh, pay-as-you-go phone, and he was out of minutes. But he could see that the clinic had called. That's a little alarming, so, but he's working on his exercise. So he walks 10 blocks to the clinic, goes to the social worker, and says, like, you guys called. What's wrong? She says, you want to go to a Bucks game? He says, no, you guys called. What's wrong? <laughs> and she says, do you want to go to a Bucks game? He's never been to the Fiserv Forum. He's going to go to a Bucks game. A good, simple thing for him. Good for the clinic, good for freighter at MCW, good for the bucks. Goodness is like water. It flows to the lowest, emptiest places and fills them up first, but then it also has an amazing capacity to spread and spread and spread. You could perhaps work on a few things this week. You could work on darkness, um, there's nobody here, I would think, who has not held on to something, and perhaps with good reason. And if you first acquired whatever that burden is yesterday, you probably can't let it go today. But maybe you acquired it a year ago or ten years ago or half a lifetime ago. Um, I, I do think it's true that we often can't let go of some of that stuff under our own power. But it is the power of God that allows us to reset 
our expectations, maybe you can let it go. Or you could spend some time thinking about the people who have been gracious and merciful and a blessing to you in your life. Maybe there's nobody on the list. If so, perhaps you can be working on putting yourself on someone else's list. The failure of others to be good and kind to you actually should be the best motivation possible to share graciousness and goodness with others. And for all of us, something any of us could work on this week, we should be in touch with the Spirit of God which resets human expectations and came to us in the form of a wonderful counselor, Prince of Peace, who also had a bit of defiance within him, too foolish to back down for the horses that would capture and destroy someone like John the Baptist and will lead ultimately to that place. But foolishness like that is life for you and me if we can just turn around. (coughs) Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Done.